For more than two years, Larry Morrow shared incredible conversations with broadcast legends from Cleveland and around the world with his radio audience on Salem Broadcasting. The radio program was called Larry Morrow's Take Two. So now it's time to take you back to those 30-minute shows as we do a podcast replay here on the Larry from the Heart podcast platform. Subscribe to this podcast and remember to share it with a friend. This is Larry Morrow's Take Two, the podcast. Enjoy. I'm Larry Morrow, and this is Take Two, the radio program that looks inside a person's adventure, not so much from the outside in, but the inside out. In the next 30 minutes, you will discover the inward joy of their heart that married them to their passion for life and the affirmation of ideals that directed their success. Today, we take a departure from our regular in-studio session of Take Two for an incredible phone conversation with one of Cleveland's most loved and respected television journalists. His name is Leon Bibb. And because we had so much to talk about and limited time to talk to you, we had broken this up into two parts, this weekend and next weekend. So let's get started with part one of our conversation with Leon Bibb. In the uh, next 30 minutes, you're going to hear a voice that you know instantly what he looks like, how much he is loved, and whose name in our marketplace brings to mind a face and personality that you hold in the highest regard. I could use his name in my introduction, but just hearing his voice says it all. The moment you hear the richness in his distinctive voice, you're instantly linked to either the voice of God or Leon Biff, and in this case, both. There are several adjectives to describe your voice, Leon, but none better than welcome, Leon. How are you, my man? It, it's it's good to be with you. Uh, this certainly is not the voice of God, though. <laughs> but I just I I, I, t- I take it as a compliment. I do. Yes. Well, I'm trying to figure out whose name is more popular in this town, Moses Cleveland or Leon Bibb. Although 224 years separates the two of you. First and foremost, you knew at a very early age, that you had a deep voice, but you wanted to be more authoritative. Tell us your unimaginable trash can story of how you would impress your girlfriend on the phone. I find that story to be very funny, Leon. <laughs> well, well, you know, believe me, it does have to do with the voice of God. But that, that's the strange thing about it. <laughs> You're right. My, my, my parents had taken me to see the movie uh, the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston playing Moses. And and in the Ten Commandments, God speaks to Moses. And Cecil B. DeMille, the director, had the voice of God as a male, deep baritone or bass voice saying, Moses, Moses. And, and I said, I would like a voice like that. Now, I was going into puberty, 13 years old or something like that. And uh, I, you know, I would call girls, and I wanted to impress them with my voice. So I would actually put a a, a trash can, uh, a wastebasket in my parents' bedroom, this aluminum wastebasket on my head that would give me this echo chamber voice. <laughs> and, 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 and the mothers or the fathers would answer the phone, and it would be me in this voice, and they'd wonder, who is you? Who are you? What do you want? What do you mean you want to talk to my daughter? And I'd have to take the waist and get off. Oh, it's just me. It's Leon. It's Leon. <laughs> so, well, you know what? I would, I would, 
I would love to have you use the line, uh, Moses, Moses, you go down and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. <laughs> yeah, it still works. Let my people go. It still yes. works. <laughs> you know what? You also delivered ad-lib broadcasts to your teammates. You, you run a baseball team. You're a good baseball player. You didn't use the trash can, but in junior high, you would you would mimic play-by-play announcers while playing baseball. I can't even imagine that. I mean, I, I mean, I can see you doing it, but that was that's a wonderful story, Leon. Well, well, I'd, I'd like to do a play-by-play. You know, this was usually a pickup game. This was not a game where where we really had to win or anything like that. Because then I would concentrate on on the ball and the bat. But sometimes in the playground, I would say it's a sharp ball to sharp ball to a shortstop right now, and Carl Crew picks it up, throws it over the first, and that's one away. <laughs> something like that. My friend Carl Crew throwing the ball over, or John Moreland, my friend, who, who played baseball with me. We we, we had fun. And, and they always uh, joked with me about, you know, you're always on the air, Leon. You're always trying to be a newscaster or a sportscaster. And I say, well, that's what I want to do one day. Yeah. You you know what? I had sort of the same experience, but in a, in a much different way when I was young. Leon, if you don't mind, sort of in the next 30 minutes, we're going to bathe in your reflective glory. Not so much all the wonderful accolades, because uh, we hear so much of those, but, but some of what our audience has never heard nor know about you. Let's take it back to the beginning. You were not born in Ohio, were you? You were born in Butler, Alabama, right? Exactly. As my mother hated for me to say, I was conceived in Cleveland, but born in Alabama. That's because uh, (laughs) that's where I was. Uh, My mother visited her ancestral home, and that's where I was when I guess it was time for birth to begin. And so I was born there. So my my birth certificate says Alabama, but I was really raised in Cleveland. I don't know much about Alabama other than to go back over the years to to visit my grandparents. So that's how I got born there. that's where mother was when I decided to get born. Yeah. That's a good idea, isn't it? <laughs> well, so tell us about your parents and the way that you were raised. I know because I've seen so many clips of you talking about your mom and dad. I know you admired both your mom and dad as affectionate and significant role models. Uh, let's talk about them. Tell us about what it was like growing up with your mom and dad and what they taught you, Leon. They were wonderful people. They're gone now. Dad died in 2002. Mother died in 2011. Uh, They were together as husband and wife for 60 years and three months. So death did his part when Dad Dad died. But they were wonderful, wonderful people. Dad was a a veteran of World War II. And uh, he and my mother uh, uh, met, believe it or not, in college in Alabama. They're both Alabamans. And uh, they met in college at Alabama State Teachers College. It's now called Alabama State University. It's a predominantly black school. And, of course, they could not go to University of Alabama. Now, at the time, they went to college in the in the 1930s, the late uh, 1930s and the early 1940s. And they met there and uh, <clears throat> dated there. And then they both immigrated to Cleveland, each, each coming on dad's own and mother's own, on their own, and they stayed with relatives as they immigrated to Cleveland around 1940, and then they reconnected here in Cleveland. 
and uh, that and, and got married on uh, Thanksgiving Day, 1942. And they were wonderful parents uh, who instilled in me and my sister uh, the, the importance of education, the importance of work, the importance of being truthful, and the importance of always doing your best at whatever you try to do. And uh, so I, I had a wonderful childhood. We did not have much extra money to spend on things, but I really didn't need much money as a as a as a child because what did I need? I needed a, a baseball, I needed a glove, I needed a bicycle, and that was about it. And what else? You know, everything else was was was, was extra. A bottle of pop or something. So I didn't need a whole lot, and I had good friends all up and down the street. I lived on Parkgate Avenue in the Glenville area of Cleveland. And all of my friends, we were we were children of the same age, and most of our parents uh, had been uh, World War II veterans, at least the fathers were. So it was a wonderful childhood at a wonderful neighborhood. And I call it, it was kind of like a Leave it to Beaver, uh, if you remember the television show, uh, kind of oh, atmosphere yeah. that I grew up in, that I grew up in. Strong, strong well, you know, families, uh, strong ownership of homes, that kind of thing. It, our our lives sort of are very reflective of the same kind of situation. I remember we didn't we didn't have a television, and when and when the guy next door had a television, his name was Joe, and and there was only a, a, a one channel or two channels you could watch, and they didn't come on until six o'clock at night, and we would go next door and sit on his front porch and just watch through the window, and say, "Wow, is that cool? <laughs> that is unbelievable." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You you remember watching the test pattern that was on the screen yeah. until the TV station signed on. There was a, 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 a test pattern of some sort, and when they signed on, we we were there to to, to catch the, uh, the the afternoon whatever the afternoon fair was for for uh, yeah. for mostly kids. I think we were mostly watching the Howdy Doody show. That that kind of dates me. Howdy Doody with <laughs> Buffalo Bob and Clara yeah. all the clown. Yeah. Well, Leon, you've now been a veteran news anchor and journalist for over 50 years. But given the climate of the 60s, which was a time of hope and heartbreak for all of us, you stopped the racial divide which had plagued America. And up until this time, as you know, black anchors had been ignored. You became the first black primetime anchor in Ohio and one of the first 10 in the country to sit at the anchor desk, first in Columbus in 1976, and then in Cleveland, 1985, take us through right. that exciting time. What what was in your heart, and what was the conversation like when you went home to your darling bride, Marguerite, and said, "Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna promote me, <laughs> but we ain't gonna make no more money." <laughs> they told me, "We'll yeah. we'll see how this works, uh, and and we'll we'll." Get back to you in six months. Let's try it out for six months. Okay, I'm just glad to get promoted. I had been the weekend anchor at, at uh, in the Columbus station uh, for three years. I went there in 1972, and I'd been the weekend anchor there until about 1976, and then I got promoted to Monday through Friday. So mm-hmm. it, it was uh, it was all very all very gratifying. And uh, they came to me and asked me to, to do the news, and I was going to be the young upstart on on, on the news. I was going to be the, the the kid anchor. Well, I wasn't a kid, but I was late twenties, early thirties, I guess. And and I was going to sit with the veteran 
newscaster who'd been there for many years, who was also the director of the entire department at that time, mm-hmm. the news department. So, so we sat together, and uh, it, it was an opportunity for me. I had done weekends for three years, and prior to even going to Columbus, I'd worked in television in Toledo for uh, less than a year, 10 months, as a reporter, photographer, writer, editor. I, I did it all. One-man band half the time, going out with a yeah. camera and, and shooting it and editing it and writing it and then reporting it, all of that by myself half the time. With with your unprecedented selection as a major market anchor, and then given the struggle to narrow the nation's racial divide, what effect do you think, Leon, that your selection as a major market anchor had at that time? Well, I had people contact me uh, in Columbus when I was uh, the primetime anchor, and when I was even the weekend anchor in Columbus. And later, when I came to Cleveland and did the weekends and then went to primetime, it happened in both both communities. People would come up mm-hmm. to me, especially black people, uh, especially people who were older than I was, and they would say, son. And then I would start the, friend, the, the sentence with son, S-O-N. Son, I want you to know that you represent us and that we are mm-hmm. so proud of you. And uh, just keep on doing what you're doing. Now, that put an amount of pressure on me, Larry. It really did, because I felt like I was Jackie Robinson. Not only did yeah. I have to deal with with, 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 the, with the racial issues and, and some people who might not have been pleased about my being there, but I had to do the job as well and carry the weight of people on my shoulders who said, don't let us down, Leon. You keep on representing the race well, is what older folks especially told me. And I was trying to just represent myself. But in, as an aside, as I understood, I guess I represented them too. And so, you know, they would ask me to come speak in, in at churches and synagogues and schools and uh, other social gatherings. They would ask me to come speak. So I always made it a, a part of my life to accept as many of those speaking engagements for free as I could because they needed to see me and see that I was part of the community. And when you become part of the community, as I did in Columbus and as I did when I came back to my hometown of Cleveland, you really get a leg up on things. People trust you. Uh, they, they they know you're part of the community. They know you're just not reporting the news, but you're reporting from, from your home. And Columbus was my home. Where Wherever I am, Larry, that's home. That, that, yeah, that becomes that. my home. So so the, that, that there was an amount of pressure on me, but it just went with the job, and, and I guess there still was an amount of pressure that, that is on me as well, well every day. Well, having having said that, do you believe that what happened to you was a strong step in the fight for equal rights, which at that time opened the door uh, not only for people like you, but for future black reporters on television? Right, right. I, I've had people tell me, uh, uh, Roosevelt Leftwich, who's over at a, a Channel 8 right now here in Cleveland, who worked... Uh, we worked together at, uh, at Channel 5 years, years before, and uh, he said I, he was a student at Ohio University down in Athens, and he would see me on the air in Columbus. And he says I inspired him to, to go into journalism. So I, I felt good about that, and I've had other people tell me that. Some of them even at the network level shared with me that, that I was an inspiration just just being there. And I did, I did not know that I was that inspiration to them, but they told me years later. 
Well, I think, you know what I think is so wonderful, Leon, is that those of us who are in this business, we have people that sort of follow our own examples and they find courage to follow their dreams because they say, well, if Leon can do it, I can do it too. And that, and that obviously had to bring great joys and, and smiles, not only to yeah. yourself, but heart as well, Leon. Yeah, it did. It did and still does. It still does. Yeah. I take it to heart. I take mm-hmm. it to heart. Well, your warm baritone voice has entered our living room uh, of Ohio and all of our households for more than 40 years. But it all started sort of at WBGU Radio and Television News when you were a student at Bowling Green back in 1962. Why did you choose Bowling Green? <laughs> That's a funny story. Uh, my folks told me, you know, you got to, in my senior year in, in, in high school, they said, listen, uh, you know, you're going to college. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I, there, there was no doubt I was going. They were going to make sure that I, I chose the college. They said, your job is to find the college to go to. So <laughs> I applied, and I did not have the greatest of grades from Glenville High School. I was not what you call a scholar. I could have had better grades, but, but I, I had too many sideline activities, a little job outside of, outside of school that, that kept me from doing the, the appropriate amount of homework and all of that. So I was really concerned about getting into anybody's college. I had applied at, at uh, Ohio University in Athens, Central State University down in Virginia, Ohio, and Bowling Green State University in Northwest Ohio. I applied to those three schools, and Bowling Green answered first. And I said, I better take this. I better take this job. I better take this college. Now, had Ohio University answered first, I probably would have gone there. I just wanted to get into a, into a good journalism school. And, and Bowling Green was there for us, and, and mother and dad drove over to the university with me. And, and, we, and uh, when, once I was accepted, funny story. I wanted to go to the university even uh, before I accepted the, the the deal to go there, before I told them, yes, we'll mm-hmm. I'll be coming. And I told my dad, I said, I got this acceptance, dad, and, and you know, I want to think about it a little bit. Maybe we can drive over to Bowling Green and take a look at it and see if I like it. And dad said, <laughs> what do you need to see? They've got books and they've got buildings. What else are you looking for in college? And I said, well, I guess that. He says, we don't need to drive over. You just tell them we're coming. And that was it. <laughs> so I went there. So I went to Bowling Green site unseen. They had books and they had buildings, and that's it. That'll, that'll suffice. And uh, it was a late institution, too. Uh, my, my daughters went to Bowling Green, and I, and I wanted mm-hmm. because I went to Michigan. I wanted to, yeah. my, one of my twin daughters to go to Michigan. And the other one I wanted yeah. to go to University of Cincinnati, and because their uh, their profiles fit those schools perfectly. And then I said, yeah. "Girls, I said we to apply too." <clears throat> we went to visit both of them, and they said, "Dad, we've made our decision, and I'm waiting for U of M, and I'm waiting for University of Cincinnati." <laughs> and they said, "Dad, we've chosen Bowling Green." <laughs> so, and you know, Bowling what Green did me well. Yeah. yeah, and they and, and they loved and they loved it all. You know, speaking of Bowling Green. It was uh, in 1966, because this has some, some relation to Bowling Green, but in 1966, uh, it, we all realized that Vietnam had interrupted all of our lives, and you were drafted. Uh, I, too, was in Vietnam, but on a, on, on a much less serious mission than you. 
You were on the yeah. front line, dodging bullets, hand grenades, and watching some of your friends die fighting next to you, Leon. Uh, that was a long time ago. Things like that change your perspective on life. Were you affected by it? Oh, yeah. There's not a day goes by that I do not <clears throat> think of Vietnam. In some way, now it's not a it's not a a, a bother. I don't think I have problems as a result of the war in Vietnam. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But but not a day goes by. I'm, I'm sitting in my family room right now, and I'm looking at photographs of of me in Vietnam. They're on the wall around my around my around my desk here where I work, and uh, <clears throat> I, I think of it often because I, I went there as a as a young man drafted. I went to Vietnam as a young man. And I think I came home as an old man because it, it, it changed me. You you grow up quickly. You see life. You see death. You realize that your your life is on the line, and the lives of other men around you are on the line. And uh, we've had you know we had a we had a, a deaths in our unit. Certainly, one particular death was very close to me. <laughs> and uh, uh, and and I, I think about that young fellow. He and I would would be the same age that he lived. We would be the same age, but, but he died at the age of uh, 21 uh, or 22. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been in touch with, with his family uh, from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Wow, what a story. You know, I remember vividly introducing you at another event when uh, I referred to you as a military warrior. And I'm sure the last thing on your mind while in Vietnam that due to your brave heroism in combat zone you would leave Vietnam with a Bronze Star, which, by the way, is a military accolade of great distinction. Um, what was that like, Leon? I think that the, the part that, that, that got me the most was just being away from home. I was telling, telling somebody just the other day, a couple of days ago, I said there, there were times where I would be in the, on a, on a, on a on patrol in the jungle, and what? And if you would ask me, what do I want? I'd say a pair of dry socks. I just wish my feet weren't wet. <laughs> so, so there was that, and then I was away from away from home, away from my wife, who I married Marguerite. I had been married. Uh, we got married uh, while I was in the military, but before I went to Vietnam. And I guess we only had in the first two years of marriage, we were only together for about two months total. About two months total. So, so you know, I missed her, of course, and and, and just the loneliness of it. And there are long periods, there are periods in the war where where nothing is happening. It's just boring. You're just sitting there doing doing mm-hmm. your job, and you don't know when the next attack is going to take place. So you're kind of always there, and 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 uh, and just the creature comforts, just the just, just the creature comforts of. You know, you could if you had a bed, a warm bed, and if you had a. I remember when we got milk, Larry. We got milk. It was there. I was there for some months before milk was flown in from Honolulu. Before that, we had powdered milk that you'd mix with water, and it was lumpy when you drink it. It had lumps in it, so most of us just left it alone. But when we got milk, I remember the first time we got milk from Honolulu in cartons. We poured it in the in the cups, and we sat and we drank it. As if it was bourbon, we sipped it and giggled over over glasses of milk, cups of milk. I, I, I think about that. Those are the lonely times uh, of the war yeah. when you just wish that you could 
get home and, you know, see family, see friends. You know, Leon, my very first weekend in uh, Vietnam, and I was in Continue, uh, and then we moved from Continue yeah. up to Da Nang, and when I was in Da Nang, I'll never forget the first day, I said to the guys, I said, I need to brush my teeth. And I said, the water, the water truck is not outside. They said, here's what you brush your teeth with. And they handed me a fifth of gin or whatever it was. I said, I'm brushing <laughs> my teeth with liquor? Because <laughs> <laughs> the water was not always good. It was not always yeah. good. Yeah. When, 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 were you, when were you there, Larry? When were you, when were you uh, Thompson and, and then Donay? Yeah, uh, in 1968. That is when I went with uh, to it's called Bring the Boys Home from Vietnam for Thanksgiving, and yeah. um, it, it's a, it's another story which I'll share with you at another time. But you know, it's very interesting, yeah. Leanne. I I went in the Marine Corps, and my my biggest rank was a corporal when I got out after three years. And when I went to Vietnam, uh, they I was given the rank of major because they said <laughs> you're going to be interviewing all of these kids in Vietnam. And if you get if you get caught uh, and captured, if you're an officer, they'll probably negotiate to get you back or get some of their people back. But if you're an enlisted man, yeah. they just may shoot you. <clears throat> so I said, okay, I'll take the major role. <laughs> and that so was you, great so you, fun. So you put some Oakley clusters on your shoulder there. Yeah, some yeah, I did. And, yeah. And, and for the first time in my life, you know, here I was still in the Marine Corps, but at the, but having captains and First and second lieutenant salute me, and I that was very yeah. unusual for me. And as much yeah. as they did it, I never believed it. So, yeah. but it's a great yeah. story. When, <laughs> when you were over there doing that, I was over there at about that time because I was there from sixty-seven, September sixty-seven to September sixty-eight. I was over. Yeah, there. so we ju- I just yeah. I just missed you because I went in November. <laughs> so I yeah, just missed I was you. there. Remember, next weekend, we will continue this conversation with our good friend, Leon Bibb. And we'll be back Saturday morning at 930 on 1220, The Word, and Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. on 1420, The Answer. Until next time, do all the good you can to everyone you can, every time you can. This is Take Two, and I'm Larry Morrow. Larry Morrow's Take Two is now a podcast series featuring an inspiring library of conversations that Larry had with many broadcast legends from Cleveland and around the world. Subscribe to the podcast and remember to share it with a friend. A new episode releases each week, and it's right here on the Larry from the Heart podcast platform. Thank you for listening.